And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock. And over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And this is the word of the Lord. So much, Eliza. Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's good to be back with you. And as John said, a warm welcome to any of you who may be new joining us for the first time or those who are newer to our church family. And if you're newer, it's, it's a good week to be joining us because just this past or just last week, we started a new series called The Image of God Becoming Fully Human. Now, m- ordinarily, our common diet for preaching here is we just walk through books of the Bible line by line and see what God has to say in that. But every now and then, often once or so per year, uh, we find that there's a pertinent need uh, in our culture, you know, in our nation that the Word of God addresses because relationship with Christ intersects with every area of life. And we clearly live in a day where there's perhaps been no more confusion on, like, what does it mean to be human? Uh, how do I understand myself? How do I treat other people, uh, particularly when it comes to deep differences? And whether you know it or not, all of us are being mentored daily on the answer to this question by an algorithm. Okay, so instead, because that answer is clearly found wanting, what we're doing is we're going to the scriptures where God gives us a much more rich and stable foundation for understanding ourselves and relating to other people. And so what we looked at last week is we said, if we're going to talk about questions like, how do I make sense of myself? How do I relate to other people? The foundation we need to set is is to ask the question, why? Why do you exist? What's the purpose for your life? And what we saw in Genesis 1 is the answer is the reason for your life is that you image God. And we put up a picture of my cat, Feely, and we talked about how Feely, as cute and as hilarious as he is, uh, you reflect God in ways that he does not, right? So Feely doesn't pray for Ukraine. Uh, Feely's heart doesn't break or become angry when he hears about children getting abused. Feely doesn't invite people to share a meal with him, other than his other cat friends, against his will, right? To give them belonging and community in a lonely and anxious world, right? But you and I do, and can. And the reason is because the capacities you have, so for mercy, justice, relationality, among many other things, are, are, the, are the reflection of God in you. And so we reflect God, but also we represent God. We're to be God's presence in any space that we enter. And then we ended by doing something I never thought we'd do in this church. We all took selfies. And the point of that was to take a look at yourself, because often, you know, someone takes a photo of you with a group, and you immediately tend to look at yourself, and you're super critical. At least that's what I do. But we wanted to see that, you know, while you may have never been happy with your body, you may have never been happy with your abilities or your personality, you have inexpressible worth because you are made to image God, to reflect Him and represent Him. 
And so what we're doing today now is we're shifting the emphasis from you image God to your neighbor images God. And you see here in Genesis 1 verse, um, verse 26 where it says, where God says, let us make man in our image. So that word man there is a English translation of the Hebrew word humanity. Okay, so God's saying, let us make humanity, all people in my image. And then to underscore the point in verse 27, he says, male and female, he created them. Right, to underline the fact that both genders, men and women, have equal grandeur because they're both made in the image of God. And so I want you to do something with me really quickly. Well, I'm not going to be able to do it because I don't have anyone next to me up here. But I just want you to turn to the person next to you. Okay, so everybody look at your neighbor and stare them in the eye. Some of you are loving this. Some of you are hating it. Some of you lasted half a second. All right, you can, you can resume to neutral. Some of you got lucky because you kind of sat a little bit by yourself. I, I heard someone say that perhaps our discomfort with eye contact, uh, there's something in us that has discomfort with being proximate to the divine. But the, the point of that exercise was, you know, as you look at the person next to you, as you look at anyone in this church, that person isn't just special, they're sacred, is what we're told in Genesis 1. The person next to you has a soul that will endure into eternity. And this should place a profound weight on us and a significance as we think about interacting with every single human that you come across, right? They are made in God's image. Okay, so what we're going to look at tonight is, like, what do we do with this? This topic is as vast as the world itself, and so to make it a little bit more digestible, and maybe God will show you things that we don't even cover this evening, but the, the main point of, of tonight is just that every single human image is God. Your neighbor image is God. And today we'll look at two groups of people that have a particular relevance for thinking about this. And so that would be those who are vulnerable and your enemies. Okay, so the vulnerable and your enemies, they are human beings, and so therefore they are made in the image of God. So how do we relate to them? Okay, so first, number one, is we think about this idea of every person being made in the image of God for the vulnerable. So, the image of God gives you the only stable foundation for justice. Now, it's widely assumed that in Western nations, right, one of which we live in, that these ideals that we have, right, that human rights exist, that charity and caring for the oppressed should be things that we prioritized, it's widely assumed that these are just values that all enlightened, reasonable people should believe. Right, so, well, of course, as you get educated enough and you realize you know, how a society can remain the most stable, like, yeah, of, of course it's wrong to exploit people. But history would say it's not that simple. And if you look at Greco-Roman society, for example, from which Western civilization came out of, Greco-Roman culture was, you could say, not a culture marked by justice. Okay, history was just not inexorably on an arc toward human rights and justice. Okay, the Greco-Roman culture was a society that privileged the strong, where if you were poor or a woman or a slave or a baby, you were a tool to be used for the pleasure of those who were in power. And it wasn't until, and you'll see many more and more secular historians are attesting to this, it wasn't until Christians came along operating out of this principle of every human being made in the image of God that they would 
look at the poor and say, no, it's wrong to starve the poor just because they may be inconvenient. And they, they cared for the poor whether they belonged to the church or not. They said it's wrong to, if you have a baby you don't want, to just leave them outside and let them die of thirst and hunger. And they brought them into their homes. They said misogyny is wrong because God created them male and female. Okay, and women or children aren't meant to be used as sex toys, but sex should be within a covenant of marriage where both parties are given consent. Okay, racism and slavery is wrong because people are not property to be traded, but they're image bearers to be dignified. And so this is the, this is the entire tradition that Martin Luther King Jr. was, was pulling from when, you know, in, in many of his speeches and sermons. Uh, but one of the most clearest places was when his, in his sermon, The American Dream, when he says, The whole concept of the image of God is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. Every man has a capacity to have fellowship with God, and this gives him a uniqueness. It gives him a worth. It gives, it gives him dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation, that there are no gradations in the, in the image of God. Every human being, from a treble white to a bass black, is significant on God's keyboard, precisely because every human being is made in the image of God. No gradations. Okay, so people aren't valuable based on how attractive they are or how smart they are or what gender they are or what part of the world they're from or even just because a group of people says they're valuable. They're given an inherent worth and dignity because they are made to reflect and represent God. And this fact of the image of God is is the basis for the best justice traditions in society. And so as we move now from, okay, what's the principle to application, just something for those of you who are here exploring the faith, and then for those of you who are followers of Jesus. So for those of you who are uh, checking things out, exploring the faith, just a question to ask is, if you believe things like misogyny and racism and exploiting the poor are wrong, a question you have to ask is why. Why? Now, don't mistake, don't mistake me. I believe that you believe, perhaps with greater conviction than I do, that it's wrong. But we have to ask the hard question of why is it wrong? Because we live in a moment where there is a profound incoherence when it comes to how we approach justice. Because on the one hand, we'll say, all right, that's fine. Maybe you believe in God. Maybe you don't. Just don't bring him into public conversations. Okay, what's really important is that you are true to yourself. But then on the other hand, if someone says, but what if being true to myself is being a racist, right, or being a misogynist, quickly they're, they're met right back with, well, that's wrong. You have to, well, why is it wrong? You can say, well, just all reasonable people know. All enlightened people believe it's wrong to do this. No, that's an assertion, not an argument. And even unbelievers are pointing out that when non-Westerners are, are, who don't have these ideals are faced with these arguments from Westerners, they say, you know, this is the same imperialist, white, like, philosophies that you've been trying to impose on us for, for decades. And so if you believe that these things are wrong, that there is something in a human being that is worth protecting and valuing, especially if they're vulnerable— just an encouragement in the Bible is to, won't you even consider getting to know the God who can give you a rich and stable basis for the intuitions that you so rightly have?
okay, because it is the image of God where we actually get a basis to pursue these, these amazing kinds of things, right, that our, that our world so desperately needs. So it's just a, a challenge and hopefully an encouragement for you guys here who aren't Christians. And so for those of you who are believers, you call this church your church home, this fact of the image of God should, because the image of God should cause us as a church, right, to give dignity to all people, this should make us one of the most interesting communities, okay, and here's why. Because politics have so dominated our thinking that you can find out who someone voted for and then with a reasonable degree of accuracy predict where they stand on a whole host of issues immediately, Okay, but if we believe that all humans are created in the image of God, this should give us a treatment toward other people that cuts across political lines, okay, and cuts through political categories. Okay, so for example, because every person is made in the image of God, we stand against racism in all its forms. But at the same time, that doesn't mean we immediately hate and shun those in our country who are still coming to terms with this history and reality in our nation. It means we, we don't play into the political rhetoric, rhetoric in the abortion debate, right, of pitting the woman against the baby or the, the baby against the mother, right, where it's a zero-sum thing, where one person has more of the image of God in them than the other person. But we dignify and protect the unborn, right, and we dignify and protect a mother who's found herself in a lonely and fearful position. And we do everything we can to resource vulnerable families and work towards systems so that abortions decrease in our nation, and if anyone comes into this church who's had an abortion, I mean, I know most of you, and I, I know and love the fact that they would be never met with shame. And I hope as we continue to grow as a church, someone who's been part of an abortion or connected to one is met with nothing less than love and community because they're made in the image of God. Okay, we care for the poor because they're made in the image of God. It is one of the reasons why we um, support foster families in the city, why we support homeless families. Okay, and we, we also love and support those with special needs because they're made in the image of God. Um, some of you may be aware of this, but I recently read a statistic that was pretty striking where, so in Iceland, about 85% of parents who are, are pregnant opt to get a prenatal scan. And of the parents who do a prenatal scan to see if their child has Down syndrome, close to 100% of people opt to terminate the pregnancy. So there's roughly one to two babies each year born in Iceland with special needs. And somehow we call that progress. But what we say is our brothers and sisters who have special, special needs, they're not valuable because of their cognitive capacity. They're not even valuable because of their ability to care for themselves. They're valuable because they're made in the image of God. And so what, what party do you know that is against racism and dignifies the unborn and dignifies mothers who find themselves in a position where they want an abortion and dignifies the poor and dignifies those with special needs? There isn't one. And so this isn't to say don't vote. Okay, but what it is to say is, is our, and ultimately, in, especially with the way our current system is, you're often going to probably have to vote for people. They may align with you on some ways you want it, in other ways they don't. But the point here is, generally speaking, our attitudes 
okay, in our heart toward other people. Yes, policy is immensely complex, but our attitude toward all people okay, should be shaped by the fact that every human being is made in the image of God. Okay, so that's the first thing, a, a rich and very unique way right, that we get to look out for those who aren't able to care for or protect themselves. Okay, so that, that's first, how the image of God leads us to love our neighbor who's vulnerable. Okay, heavy, but it's really important we, we see what, what God's Word says on this stuff. So number two, um, maybe you'll find this even heavier. Okay, number two, depending on what's going on in your life, how the image of God leads us to love our enemies. Because something that's unique about the way that Christ has always called us to embody love is Jesus-centered love always includes love for enemies. It's, it's unique in that sense. And we live in a cultural moment where, in one sense, our nation has maybe, maybe more than ever, has never so loudly preached for inclusivity and love for many good reasons. But yet, on the other hand, is maybe the most condemning and unforgiving culture we've ever seen, right? Where if you say or do something that's outside of the bounds of orthodoxy for that tribe— then you're out. You're now cast out from the community of humanity, as it were. Sometimes we call that canceling. And both, all sides do this. Okay, but what the image of God means and what Christ calls us to is that our love doesn't just apply to those who are like us or those who think like us, right? But it applies to all people because they're made in God's image. And Jesus tells a story about this. Um, And so we're going to look at that. Uh, for the remainder of this evening. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. If you don't have your Bible with you, the, the, the passage will also be on the screen. And this is often known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Okay, so Luke chapter 10, verse, beginning verse 25, and I'll just, I'm just going to go and read it straight through, uh, verse 20, ver- through verse 37, and then we'll, we'll look at what, what is Jesus getting at here when it comes to love for enemy. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, that's Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So we have this exchange here, and you could, you know, we're not going to unfold all of this 
parable. We're just going to look at the main, the main, one of the main points Jesus makes. So there's this exchange between a lawyer, a respectable person, and Jesus. And toward the end of the first part of the exchange, Jesus tells the lawyer, he says, one of the top two most important things you must do, I command you to do with your life, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And the lawyer responds with saying, with asking, and who is my neighbor, Jesus? So he's just like you and me, like we hear a command and immediately we go to, okay, what's the minimum standard I have to do just to, to do what you want me to do? And so then Jesus moves on and he tells the story of this good Samaritan. And so you have this man, he's an Israelite, and he gets beaten close to death. He's robbed and he, he's left for dead on the road. And then a priest and a Levite are walking by, both occupations of which are meant to care for the poor. And they walk to the, they cross over the other side. They don't help him. Now, maybe they were busy, right? They had a place to go. Uh, it was also probably very dangerous for them to help this man because the robbers were likely nearby. But wh- whatever the reason, they kept going. And then a Samaritan, he sees the man, right? So he, he gets off his horse. He binds up his wounds, takes him to an inn, and he just tells the innkeeper, however much this is going to cost to make this guy better, like, I'll come back and I'll make it right. I'll pay for everything this guy needs. And so that's the, that's the parable. Now, what is Jesus getting at? And as we go into one of Jesus's main points, I just, to try to make this a little bit more real to you, just try to think of somebody in your life right now that is really, really hard to love. You just get that face, that person, often all the emotions that surround you or inject into you when you think about that person. Just keep that person in mind. Okay, so when, when Jesus is talking here about, because Jesus', Jesus point is you're to see the image of God even in your enemy and, sh- and show compassion to them because that is what is due to them. And so some context here, like, like there are two things about this call that Jesus uh, gives to love your enemy, which is so profound. And so the first thing is Samaritans and Israelites hated each other. Like think of two groups or two people that hate one another with an acidic disdain. Right, and then probably multiply that by two, and you get Samaritans and Israelites. And so there's an Israelite in the ditch, right? Samaritan passes by, and the Samaritan extends him compassion. He sees the image of God in him, and he helps him. And so what Jesus is getting at, first of all, here is he's saying, yes, of course it's easy to love those you like. Okay, but even for your enemies, even those who you disdain, you're still called to see the image of God in them and extend to them compassion, And number two, what Jesus is getting at here is you're to love those as image bearers even if you don't think they deserve it. Okay, so there's a pastor named Tim Keller, and he talks about when he used to pastor down in rural Virginia. He'd often get a number of his church members to help those in need in his town. And he said a common refrain he would hear is from people in his church who would say things like, okay, I don't mind helping people say lightning strikes their house, right? Or their, their house burns down. Sure, I'll help them out. Even if I'm not a big fan, it wasn't really their fault. Yeah, I'll give money. I'll help rebuild the house, whatever. But don't you dare ask me to help that person, okay? Don't you dare ask me to help those people because I know her. I know them. They're reckless. They're foolish. They were a jerk to me. So don't you dare ask me to help them. And what Jesus is getting at here in this parable is it doesn't matter if you think they deserve it. Because what's going on here is both Samaritans and Israelites each saw the other group as the oppressor. And this wasn't an individualistic society. It was a collectivist society. And so the Samaritan would have seen 
the Israelite in a ditch, and even if he didn't know him, he would have still said, oh, he's part of the oppressive class. He deserves what's going to happen to him. And he probably even would have been tempted to get off his horse, but then finish the job of killing the man. (laughs) But no, instead he saw the image of God in him and cared for him. And so as you think about for the people in your life or the person, who is it that's just so, so hard to love? It might be a faceless group, like people who support the political party you don't vote for. Uh, One of our members this week sent me a study where uh, current college students were surveyed, and they were asked, would you room with somebody if you found out they voted for the party opposite of you? And about 50% said no. You wouldn't even room with them. Okay, even actually this afternoon on my way here, so there's a pizza place I love to go to. No, it's not Pupatella. It's a different place. Okay, pizza place I love to go to, and their, their culture is pretty left-leaning. And every now and then I get texts, you know, for like a surprise discount. You go to now, you can get 20% off. And I get a text on my way here that says, you know, click this link. We'll apply it to your, to your app wallet. 20% off unless you're Kanye, right? Because Kanye, he's in the news again because he did something. Okay, but like even there you see it. Right? I, I don't think it was a joke. Okay, so if you're, is it a political enemy, a person or a group that you just, you can't even comprehend them, why they think the way they think? Is it a theological enemy? Is it your boss? Is it an obnoxious or irritating coworker? Is it somebody who maybe you share the same roof with? Maybe it's one of your children. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a roommate. Maybe it's a family member you see on holidays. You're already dreading Thanksgiving. Jesus says, see, just as you have inexpressible worth, so does your enemy. And yes, love is complicated, okay, but at minimum, we have to start with seeing the image of God, even in those who we think don't deserve it. So now, how does Jesus motivate this man to obey it? Right, because this is a immensely difficult standard. And here's what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't do what most other, if not every other group, tends to do. He doesn't motivate through guilt, right? So this is what non-religious Westerners tend to do when it comes to helping others, they motivate through guilt. So they say, well, if you're an enlightened person, if you're a progressive person, then you're going to help liberate those who are oppressed. You're going to care for the vulnerable and you better do it in the ways that you think you need, that we think you need to do it. And if not, you're out. Okay. Religious people tend to do it as well. Okay. Our holy book, okay. Our God says you need to care for the poor. And if you don't, then you're not part of this community. God doesn't love you. How does Jesus motivate this man to love his neighbor as himself? And the answer lies in where does Jesus place the man, and therefore where does he place you in the story? Notice he doesn't place the man in the role of the Samaritan, right, or the priest or the Levite, because that would be motivating through guilt. Okay, if you're walking by, you see your enemy in need, see the image of God in them, show compassion, do whatever it takes to help them. But that's not where he places the man. Where, do, where does he place the man? He places him, and therefore he places you on the side of the road in the ditch. Okay, and what he's saying is, unless you see 
right? That you're the one who's alone, that you're the one who's without hope of healing, and somebody with no obligation to help you showed you mercy. You'll never be able to show mercy to others. And so if I'm on the side of the road and you're on the side of the road, then where's Jesus in this parable? He's the Samaritan. Now go back to the very beginning of this exchange. The lawyer starts with the question, Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds by telling him a story, and you a story, where you found yourself in a place where you had no hope for defeating death on your own. You had no hope for accessing joy-filled communion with God on your own. You had no hope for having your wounds and longings healed and fulfilled by, only, by what only God can do. And Jesus, he came by you on the side of the road, as it were, and he didn't say, right, you need to love me enough. Okay, you need to love your neighbor enough. No, he looked at you, we saw it in Philippians 2, right, in our call to worship, He looked at you, and even though you were indifferent to him, even though you didn't love him, he looked at you and he saw the image of God in you. And he got off his horse to put you on his. And like the Samaritan, he gave up a lot. But unlike the Samaritan, he didn't just pay a lot of money, but he gave up his life. And it's at the cross where, at the cross, Jesus was treated as one who's never loved a soul in his entire life. And then he rose from the dead to give you a new kind of life where you now, the image of God in you is brought to completion. And it's not until you see, right, the mercy that he first extended to you that you're going to be able to extend mercy to others, even those who you feel are too burdensome to love or those who have been too mean to you. And so may we put ourselves in this story and hear Jesus ask us in verse 36 at the end, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And may we respond in a version of verse 37, Jesus, it was me on the side of the road, and the one who showed me mercy was you. And then hear Jesus with all the warmth and empowering presence in the world tell us, Indeed, you go now and do likewise for others because they are also made in the image of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the mercy that you extended to us and continue to extend to us just on a day-to-day basis. And I pray that this reality will not be boring to us, Um, But fill our hearts with wonder anew so that we completely change how we view those who are vulnerable, how we love those who are really hard to love, uh, whether we see them every single day or whether we see them just a few times a year. Help us to see that uh, showing mercy to others isn't the way we earn life with you, but it is the way of life that you've given us. Thank you so much for doing all these things through your Son and empowering us by your Holy Spirit. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.